You are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Our scripture this morning comes from Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. And it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, well, good morning, church. It's good to see you. It's situated up here. Is that me? Okay, cool. Um, welcome, welcome, uh, Sunday morning. We are almost done with summer, at least in my house. Praise the Lord. Um, love my children so much. Uh, school is great. Um, but, yeah, that's right. Uh, if you're a guest with us this morning, I'm super grateful you're here. Uh, my name is Austin Baker. I'm the lead pastor here, and I'd love to meet you at some point today, uh, hopefully after the sermon. Um, not right now, but... I'm glad you're here. We are in week three of five of a sermon series on worship, kind of walking with our church through worship. What is worship? Why do we worship? How do we worship? You know, what's the significance of worshiping on Sundays? What does worship look like for us throughout the week? And then in the fall, August 7th, not technically the fall, but fall enough, we will jump back into 2 Samuel, which we took a break from this summer. But in the first week of this sermon series, we discussed how we are all made to worship. Every single living person on this planet is a worshiper. We are all made to pay homage or give devotion to our lives, uh, give devotion of our lives to someone or something. And the question before every human being on the planet is not, uh, do you worship, but is the God you worship worthy of your worship? Because everyone worships something or somebody. And we talked about how worship in God produces gladness in us. That the fact of worshiping, the fact of the the worship act itself is a good thing because it's intrinsically directed to a good God, a perfect God who is worthy of that worship. And it fills us with joy. And then last week, our worship pastor, Cody, he preached to us uh, from Psalm 34. And it's it's such a gift to have a worship pastor. Not just, not just a worship leader who sings songs and then pieces out, but a person who pastors us through worship, through singing, through leading as he did today. So that's just a gift of God's grace. And if you missed last week, go back and listen to it. Cody did such an awesome job, and I'm so grateful for him. And this week we come to two verses on worship from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We're going to kind of zoom out from Emmanuel Church just a bit. From Sunday, what we do here, and look at what it means to worship God with our bodies. You know, what does it mean, to use the language here of Romans 12, what does it mean to offer to God our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him? And that offering being our spiritual act of worship, what does that mean? This physical act being a spiritual act of worship. You know, whether you... uh, 
whether you realize it or not, at least for the last you know, 2,400 years of, of human history, particularly in Greek and Roman and Western contexts of human history, we've lived our lives in cultures with fractured worldviews on what it means to be a human being. You know, there's been a significant devaluation of the physical part of what it means to be human. And the reason I say the last 2,400 years, you could probably make an argument for longer, but let's stick with 2,400 years for, for today. A guy named Plato came on the scene. Maybe you've heard of him. I'm sure you have. Just a master Greek philosopher around 400-ish, mid-400-ish BC. And Plato, one of his main tenets was to present a dualistic view of mankind, that human beings are in two parts, body and soul. And what he did is he took that piece of the body, that physical part, and he said, that part is bad. It's the goal, the goal of humanity is to rid ourselves of the body so that our souls may be elevated to a, the logos, is what he called it, to this spiritual plane of enlightenment. And that the goal of spirituality was to achieve that. In fact, there was a saying in Platonic philosophy at the time, soma sima esteem. It's a Greek saying, soma sima esteem. And it means the body is a tomb. The body is nothing but a dead sarcophagus housing that which really matters in existence. And this thought was carried down through the ages. This group called the Gnostics picked it up right at the turn of the, turn of the century, first century right there. And they possess this dualistic view of human beings as well. And a lot of the New Testament letters are actually written to address some of the Gnostic beliefs of the day that were infiltrating the church. And they held that the physical material world was evil, and the solution for true salvation was transcending the prison of the body and letting your divine spark, as they called it, your divine spark that's inside of your human body, letting that rid itself of any kind of physical encumbrances. And then came the Manichaeans, which St. Augustine was a Manichaean before he turned to Christ, but they kind of held the same idea. And then it just keeps getting passed down through the centuries over and over and over again, just kind of repackaged as different things. And it comes through the Enlightenment, comes into postmodernism, and here we are today until it reaches our culture today, here in American culture specifically. And this dualism still exists. But now... The language we use sells something like this. My personhood is separate from my body. Or to put it another way, who I am is more important than what I am. Or to put it another way, who I feel inside myself is more important than the physical attributes I possess. Internal meaning trumps external matter. I mean, you can say it however you want, but there are many people in our culture, maybe even many of you sitting here right now, that live within the belief that human nature that what I am inside is of more value than what I am outside. And it's not difficult to draw straight lines to the implications of this held dualistic belief in our culture. I mean, the sex industry is built upon this premise. You know, what I do with my body or what you do with my body is of little importance with who I believe myself to be. You know, arguments around abortion have also adopted this dualistic nature of humanity. You know, the conversations around abortion are no longer biological, scientific conversations. There's no denying 
that what is in the womb of a woman is living, that it has DNA of a human being. But the conversation now being had is a philosophical conversation, not is that baby a a living being, but is that baby a person? Personhood has trumped physical biology in the makeup of a human being in our culture. In other words, simply having a body doesn't make you human. Or think about people walking through gender identity issues. This is also a byproduct of a dual approach to humanity. How do I bring my physical body into subjection to my internal desires? You know, the question is not what is wrong with my desires, but what's wrong with my body? Because the body has less value than how you feel on the inside. I even read an article the other day from Australia. There's a movement that's beginning to take root that would prevent general practitioners or doctors from talking about body weight with a patient. And the reason is because unhealthy weight, whether overweight or underweight, can produce shame. And therefore, a doctor should not have those conversations with patients so that they can avoid producing unwanted shame in their patient. Again, it's a product of devaluing the health, the physicality, in order to appease internal desires. But these things aren't new. They're not new. You know, there's nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes tells us. But many of these issues we see in our culture have been around for thousands of years. They're simply just repackaged today. And the reason I mention these examples, and there are many more, but the reason I mention them is not for us to rail on the culture. There's plenty of that going on. It's not for us to make jokes or be arrogant or turn our noses up to people in desperate need of Christ in our culture. That's the apex of non-Christian responses. The reason I mention them is because we live in this reality of this dual nature and understanding of human beings. That as believers, we need to be mindful so that we do not, to use the language of Romans 12, begin conforming ourselves to the patterns of this world. But rather, as Christians, how do we have a biblical understanding of what it means to be a whole human, physical and spiritual human being? And how do we worship God with our soul and with our bodies? How do we elevate the value of the body as the Lord does and present ourselves to him as whole persons? You know, the scriptures have a completely different take on the physical universe, and particularly the body. You know, the promises from the Old Testament that stretch into the New Testament tell a story of a God who created this physical reality in our bodies as very good, right? Genesis chapter 1 and 2. But this very good reality has now been marred by sin, and we live now in a broken state. And instead of throwing it in the trash or moving beyond this physical world experiment, the Lord has committed himself to redeem and restore the physical earth and to one day make new our physical bodies. 
You know, we are whole persons. We're embodied souls, if you want to use that language. Embodied souls, created with a body and with a spirit, both of which will live on forever. But we're going to get there. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's back up a little bit. And let's get some context here around Romans 12 for this morning. You know, if we were preaching through the book of Romans, which I hope to one day, I say that about like every book of the Bible I refer to. There's some we're probably not going to be able to get to because I'm going to die. But if we preach through the book of Romans, which I hope we do one day, we would have read already 11 chapters on man's sinfulness, God's mercy in Christ, and the promises of God towards his people. You know, we've talked before when it comes to Paul's letters, but it's worth saying again that many of Paul's letters follow this same pattern where what we call the indicative, what Christ has done, precedes the imperative, what we are to do. Truth precedes command. Grace precedes command. That's true in so many of Paul's letters, and it's true here in the book of Romans as well. What Christ has done establishing who we are in him precedes the commands he has for us to obey. So for the first 11 chapters of Romans, it's a lot of indicative, a lot. So that when Paul begins Romans chapter 12, I'm going to read it again for us. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, that appeal Paul is about to make is rooted in the previous 11 chapters of God's mercy. And this fuels the worship they're about to give. And that's the first point of the sermon here. The work of God enables our embodied worship. The work of God enables our embodied worship. Now, Paul puts the mercies of God at the front and center of any act of worship. Now, he's just recounted these acts in the first 11 chapters of this book that we were utterly dead in our sin, unable to save ourselves and undeserving of the grace and mercy of God. But God sent Jesus to save us apart from the law, Romans 3.21. And through his work, there is no longer now, Romans 8.1, any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 5 tells us that death can't separate us from the love of God. Chapter 6, that sin cannot separate us from the love of God. Chapter 7, that the law cannot separate us from the love of God. And chapter 8, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And in fact, if that wasn't enough, Paul then spends three chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11, discussing this radical, utter salvation to be the eternal plan and foreknowledge of God from before the creation of the world. That it was his intent to save us from before the world even existed. That his desire has always been to show mercy to his people. Always. So Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies. Chapters 1 through 11. You know, he has been merciful to us in so many ways, church. He's been merciful to us. And specifically for our text this morning, he's been merciful in two ways. First, God's past mercies redeemed our bodies. God's past mercies redeemed our bodies. And he used that language on purpose. You know, if you read through the Old Testament, anytime someone or something was redeemed or set free from bondage of some sort, from ownership, there was a price associated with that redemption. 
Whether it be a land or an animal or a person, a certain value was fixed that needed to be paid in order to redeem or set free that land, animal, or person. And the most obvious and greatest example of redemption in the Old Testament is the Exodus, right? The Exodus event. People of God enslaved in Egypt. God redeemed them from slavery. He set them free. And what was the price of their redemption? The price was the blood of a one-year-old spotless lamb. To pay the redemption price, a lamb must be slaughtered by each family and the blood spread upon the doorpost of that family's home. So that when the angel of death came with that bill of death that needed to be paid, it had already been paid by that lamb acting as a substitute. There was no debt to be paid anymore for salvation in that moment, in the Exodus moment. Fast forward to Jesus. John the Baptist made it very clear, very early in his ministry, of who Jesus was in John 1.29, when he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, the culmination and the fulfillment of the spotless Lamb of God, the redemption price, to be paid for his people in bondage. He offers up his body on the cross, experiences physical and spiritual separation from his God and Father for our sin as our substitute and dies the death that you and I deserve to die. That was the price that was paid to redeem us. Physically and spiritually, Redeem us. Paul writes uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, he's discussing how our bodies are now temples of the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit now fills us up in our bodies when we trust in Christ for our salvation. These temples are intended to be set apart and holy and righteous. And because they're the temple of the Holy Spirit, he argues how, how foolish it would be to take our holy temple bodies and use them for selfish purposes, particularly in 1 Corinthians 6, sexual selfish purposes. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 to kind of sum up his argument. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And listen, he says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. In your body. We were bought with a great price, church, a great price, an infinite price. We're literally bought and redeemed with the very body and blood of God's only son. There is no language of self-autonomy that exists anymore in the vernacular of a follower of Jesus. None. Your body is not your own. Your body's not your own. It was bought with a price. The price being the lifeblood of the Son of God. He has purchased it, and now we glorify God with our bodies. We don't seek to seek to gratify our own desires. But not only was the price to redeem our bodies great, <coughs> excuse me, but the mere realities of the incarnation 
and the resurrection of Christ give significant value to our bodies, eternal value. You know, Jesus didn't come to earth in a fake body. You know, he didn't put on, I've heard it used, an earth suit. Come to earth, right? It's a little more than that. It wasn't just something I zip up, now I'm a human. Now he was born, he was in Mary's womb, fully human. He was born fully human. Mary, Mary labored and had contractions when the Son of God was being brought into the world. Now, Jesus grew up fully human. He, was, he had baby teeth that fell out. He went through puberty. Thought about that? Jesus Christ went through puberty as a human being. He lived fully human. He was sore and tired after a long day's work. He dealt with unruly customers, rude neighbors, potentially. He died fully human. His bones were broken. His blood was spilled. Real human bones and real human blood poured out. And he was raised fully human. He literally took on flesh and bones like you and me have. And he literally was raised in a new body of flesh and bones like you and me will one day have. And because he embodied a real, tangible, touchable human body and was raised in a real, tangible, touchable human body and will come back in a real, tangible, touchable, glorified human body, it gives so much value and significance to our real, tangible, touchable human bodies. Does it not? I mean, literally, when you look at your physical body, your hands and your legs and your feet, when, your face, when you look at your body in a mirror, can be reminded, Jesus had this. Jesus had this. Jesus was tired. Jesus got sick. Jesus had bones broken. He redeemed us spiritually from sin and death, yes. But he redeemed us physically from sin and death too when he rose from the dead. And because he was raised in body and spirit, we too will be raised in body and spirit. It gives eternal value and purpose to our physical existence, to this physical existence we live in. So how do you treat your body? I mean, literally, like, how do you care for your body? Are you taking care of your physical health? your mental health, your emotional health? How's your diet? Are you exercising? I feel like your mom. I'm not your mom. Are you exercising? How's your sexual purity? That involves your body. Are you getting enough sleep? You practice the Sabbath. Are you abusing any drugs or alcohol right now? It's doing damage to your body. How are you taking care of yourself, church? How are you honoring God with your bodies? So the work of God empowers our embodied worship. Past mercies of God have redeemed our bodies, which is reason enough to praise the Lord for his kindness and his goodness. 
But second, God's present mercies empower our obedience. Empower our obedience. Yes, God has ultimately demonstrated his mercy in sending Jesus as the redemption price for us. But he continually demonstrates his mercies to us every single day. Because he's kind. And he's benevolent. And he loves us. And he reminds his people of his goodness and his kindness often. The theologian F.F. Bruce, he once wrote in the New Testament, religion is grace and ethics is gratitude. We've been saved by God's mercy and grace. We experience God's mercy and grace every day. Therefore, we obey God in gratitude for his mercy and grace. Literally, the same Greek word charis is the root word for grace and for gratitude in the New Testament. We become like what we behold, church. We become like what we behold. So Paul is saying, fix your eyes, behold the mercies of God. Fix your gaze on the past and the present mercies of God. And let this fuel your willful, joyful, embodied devotion to the Lord all your days. That's why every once in a while here, uh, I open it up to you guys to share like, hey, give me some examples of, you know, the last couple of weeks of God showing kindness or mercy to you. And, and it's weird. It can be. Um, it's quite a lot. Uh, it could be awkward, you know, um, putting you on the spot. I know some of you guys don't like talking in front of people, which I get. I understand. But at the same time, the reason I do it is because I want us collectively to be reminded that God is working among us. He's working. He's doing stuff that even in the smallest, simplest moments of our day, God is communicating to us his love and his mercy and his kindness. I'm seeking to fix our eyes upon God's mercies and to let his past and present mercies fuel our embodied devotion and obedience to him. And the specific act of obedience in view of God's mercies here in this text is to present or offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And then Paul makes this strange statement. For this physical act, this offering of your bodies, presenting of your bodies, is your spiritual worship. Physical act to accomplish something spiritual. So what's he saying here? Let's break it down just a little bit. Let's break it down. The language being used here in this text has Old Testament priestly language all over it. All over it. You know, the New Testament pretty firmly establishes that a part of our new identity in Christ is as God's people, we are a kingdom of priests. 1 Peter chapter 2 talks about that. We see clearly uh, that in response to the mercies of God, we are to offer our bodies up to God in an act of worship. That's what this text is saying. That presenting our bodies could also be, the term could be yielding, like submitting to God's will for us in this life, submitting to his, his will for our service in this life, yielding ourselves, kind of coming to him and saying, here I am, Lord, use me in this life however you see fit for your glory. And then we have three descriptors here of the type of sacrifice we're bringing. We are lived to be living, holy, and acceptable Living sacrifices, 
live, sacrifices. Living, holy, and acceptable. That's right. Or some translations say pleasing instead of acceptable. We are yielding up ourselves as living sacrifices as opposed to the, the slain sacrifices in the Old Testament. Right? Christ has been slain. Our Passover lamb, he's been slain. And so we're alive. And we're bringing to God ourselves and laying ourselves on the altar full of life and joy and saying, use me. Use me however you will. This is my spiritual worship. You know, the church father, John Chrysostom, <clears throat> he explains the sacrifice, a living sacrifice like this. He says, how can the body become a sacrifice? Let the eye look on no evil, and it's a sacrifice. Let the tongue utter nothing base, and it's an offering. Let the hand work no sin, and you are killing sin. But more, we must actively exert ourselves for good. The hand giving alms, the mouth blessing them that curse us, the ear ever at leisure for listening to God. Now we are dead to sin, Christian. You are dead to sin. We are actively killing sin in us on a regular basis. There's a passivity and an activity here. Dead to sin by God's grace and you're killing sin by God's grace. You know, where we see proclivities and patterns that are antithetical to the ways of God, we seek to put those to death in us. And at the same time, we're also putting on the behaviors of Christ. So there's a killing, a putting off, and a bringing upon ourselves the behaviors of Jesus. Now, I love the language of Colossians 3, another letter of Paul, verse 5. Paul writes, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he lists all these things that are not of God to put to death in our lives. And then as we're putting to death those things that are contrary to God's commands, he writes in verse 12, then put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And he lists all these qualities that should mark the people of God. I was having a conversation last night uh, with Hunter Spegg and Logan Gibbons about shopping for clothes. And um, Hunter and I, uh, we're kindred spirits. We hate shopping for clothes, hate it. I mean, we will wear clothes to the point that they begin falling apart. And we told stories of that. Uh, I've literally had shoes where the sole is like halfway off before I get new shoes. Water will like leak into it when it rains. It was gross, but I didn't want to buy clothes. So Christine's embarrassed that I said that, um, but I did. That was me. And wearing these clothes, we'd wear them to the point of destruction, and they begin to take on the characteristics of anything but pleasing and acceptable, right, to the world, to my wife. Uh, they're not pleasing and acceptable at all. So what we need to do is we need to put those clothes to death and to put on new clothes that are more acceptable and pleasing to those around us and to God. It's the same picture here Paul gives us in Colossians 3 which helps us understand Romans 12. In offering our bodies as living and holy and acceptable, we are constantly shedding old behaviors that used to characterize us before we came to know Jesus. And we are constantly putting on new garments, new behaviors that now characterize us as the people of God. That's our spiritual act of worship, and it's rooted in God's mercy. And why is that important? Well, second point here before we move into verse two, or as we move into verse two, our external bodily actions are indicative of internal willful desires. Our actions are the fruit of our desires, in other words. Paul writes in verse two, do not be conformed any longer to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
you know, it seems like Paul's giving us two options here. We're either conforming to the ways of the world or we're being transformed through the power of the Spirit. No middle ground. Like one of those two things is always happening. Either conforming more to the world or being transformed by the Spirit. And how tempting is this in our day and age to conform to the patterns and practices of the world around us? You know, Karl Barth, German theologian, he's dead now, but he said this, Christian ethics is the great disturbance. And they are. They are. Christian ethics will so radically challenge us in so many ways in the world around us and its values and convictions. I mean, how many times did Jesus himself tell his disciples in that upper room discourse, John 13, 14, 15, and 16? I mean, how often did he tell them, hey, the world's going to hate you by following me? If you were to look at your life right now, would you say the world loves you more or hates you more, your relationship with Jesus? I'm not saying be rude. I'm not saying be a jerk. But there are clearly biblical Christian things that will set us apart from the world around us, and they will not accept us. And Paul is saying, hey, don't let the world around you fit you into its own self-created mold of living. And then he says we must be transformed, literally transfigured. It's the same word in the transfiguration accounts in the Gospels that's being used here. Transfigured. Be utterly changed, utterly, from the inside out. How? By the renewing of your mind. Your mind. Like the seed of your intellect and your reason and your thinking. Transformation indeed in your actions begins by renewal of your mind. What do you fill your mind with, church? What messages and media do you consume throughout your week? I know you're hearing, hopefully, good gospel truth for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning from 10.30 to noonish. What about the rest of your week? What are you filling your mind with and your thoughts with? What are you consuming in media? Do you fill your mind with partisan media, like is Fox News and CNN like always on at your house? Filling your mind with some kind of media bias or something that may be not true in this world? How often are you flipping through social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook? Is the last thing you look at before you lay your head on your pillow at night and the first thing you look at when you wake up in the morning? Do you fill your mind with the latest Netflix series, just kind of vegging out in front of a TV or your phone for hours on end, consuming storylines and narratives that are filled with things contrary to the gospel? What do you, do, what do you read? Do you read? I guess that's a better question. Do you read? If you do, what do you read? Audiobooks are all right, I guess. But do you read? What are you allowing to shape your thinking, your understanding of God and his ways around you? How do you fill idle time? You know, when when you're waiting in line for something or you're sitting at a red light or you're on your lunch break, what are you thinking about or reaching for, consuming in those moments? Now, what if we started seeing those moments of idleness more as an invitation to dwell upon God's mercies 
than an opportunity to zone out and become disembodied. How often are you in the Word? How often are you meditating upon the mercies of God that He's shown you in the past or even in the present? Because here's the deal. What you fill your mind with is felt in your body. It is. We all know this. I mean, you waste your time in front of media all day, you're going to feel blah. I don't even know. You know what I'm talking about. I don't even have to describe what that word means, blah. You may even feel stressed or anxious depending on what you read, depending on what you saw. But you fill your mind with the things of God and your body begins to feel at peace, maybe even rested, maybe even rejuvenated in some ways. Taking off the garments of our old self and putting on the garments of the new self to present ourselves as living sacrifices to God begins with internal transformation from the Spirit. And the Spirit oftentimes uses the means of His Word and His work to bring about that transformation. Our God is a God of means. Are you providing Him means to work with? And this renewal is ongoing. You know, this renewing of our minds is a present tense verb, which means we will always be needing renewal because we forget. I do. I'm sure you do. We need to be consistently renewed every day. So are you putting into your life the means God uses to bring about his desired ends for you? We will either be conforming to the patterns of the world or will be more transformed into the image of God in Christ. There is no in-between. For renewal of mind produces clarity and understanding. That's the purpose. Why do we renew our minds? To have clarity, discernment in this world. Look at the rest of verse uh, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Why? That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, one of the devil's most effective tactics in tripping us up in this life is confusion and muddiness, a lack of clarity and understanding what is wrong and right, what is good and acceptable and perfect according to God's standards. You know, so many others outside of Christ will try to tell us what is good, try to tell us what is acceptable, will try to tell us what is perfect, but our standard of goodness is given to us by God, the embodiment of good. What is good is that which pleases him. And we seek to be transformed internally that we may practice externally what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then the last point here as we close and head into communion. Our present embodied worship will be a future eternal reality. Our present embodied worship will be a future eternal reality. Two spheres I want us to think about with this. First, God made a physical universe that we live within full of physical joys that we experience every day. Every day. 
our bodies experience the coolness of an early morning. Maybe not right now, but eventually the coolness of an early morning. We smell the scent of freshly cut grass, which I love. We hear the rhythms of waves crashing upon the shore. We taste and savor a good meal with people that we love. We see their smiling faces and hear their laughter as we enjoy their company. All of these physical joys are intended to be lived in and experienced with physical bodies that then point us to spiritual realities of a God who delights in us experiencing physical joys with ourselves and turning and praising the giver of those things. What would it look like What would it look like to take those moments in everyday life that bring you joy? What would it look like to sit in those moments and think for just a few moments of what God might be trying to communicate to you about himself in that moment? As you listen to those waves crash on that shore, on that beach, on your summer vacation, maybe God's trying to remind you that he is as constant and consistent, and always there like those waves. Maybe as you eat that good meal, you take in those tastes and the mouth that God made, maybe he's reminding you that as much as that meal satisfies, he is even more satisfying. Maybe as you see the smiles and laughter of your friends, company with good community. Maybe God is reminding you that he rejoices over you with just as much, if even more, laughter and smiling when he thinks about you in his own eternal mind. Every moment is holy and intended to transform us more into the image of Christ. But then let's zoom in even more to right now, to Sunday after Sunday after Sunday that we come together and when we worship together. How many of our physical senses are invoked in the worship gathering? Communion. Literally savoring, putting, putting into our mouths and savoring the physical Sacrifice, remind, being reminded of the physical sacrifice of Christ. Savoring that moment as we savor the bread and the juice in our mouths. It's even better with sourdough bread. Homemade. It's great. When we worship, we're engaging our mouths and our ears and our hands and our heads and our eyes and our voices. Physical manifestation of internal internal and eternal realities. When we come in and are welcomed here and you shake physical hands and you have physical smiles on your face and you see physical people with physical words that they want to communicate to you, there is great joy that comes in, in those physical exercises being experienced in this worship gathering. Baptism, you feel the water. You feel the hands of someone putting you under the water. You hear the charge 
said over you, that you're being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You're reminded of God's great mercy towards you, even in the physical act of being baptized. These are precursors to eternal realities. They are an invitation to taste and see that the Lord is good. He's good. And as we sang earlier, we will see it now. We see it now, and we will see the love in his eyes. Physical eyes. We've heard his voice, followed his voice our entire lives, and we will one day see his physical face. That has spoken to us the entirety of our lives. Let's pray together. Father, you made us. You made us. You knit us together in our mother's womb as physical and spiritual beings. And even right now where we're sitting, we we feel the, the seat we're sitting in. Maybe we smell the perfume or the cologne of the person sitting next to us that we love and that we care for. And we're reminded of your great mercies. We're reminded of your mercies as we gaze out on this body and see so many people that we love and care for and worship with on a weekly basis. We're reminded of your mercies when we sit underneath your word and are instructed by your word and the spirit convicts us and changes us. We're reminded that you don't forget us. They have a plan for us that you still have, you still desire to make us more to the image of your son. As we come and take communion, Lord, you remind us of your great mercy. As the body of Christ was broken on the cross for us. As his blood, real physical blood was shed on the cross for us. As we literally taste and see the bread and the juice, we are reminded of your great mercy. Help us, oh God, not to, not to just shrug off the physical realities we find ourselves in, but help us to see and understand how to worship you with our bodies worship you even more throughout our week living in this physical world that you have made. All for your glory, O God. We love you. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.